Well, let's look at Ephesians uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 9 and 10. Uh, I love this. I really love this. I hope that comes through. Now, let's pray. Uh, God, we, we know that we only have, we have a sufficient, but not even within a millionth of an exhaustive grasp of what you have done and are doing and will do for us through your Son. It is absolutely amazing uh, who the Lord Jesus Christ is and just he is everything for us, everything in terms of the redemption of humanity, everything for the restoring and the recovering uh, of your good creation and uh, restoring the original purposes for which you made us, for restoring the praise and honour and glory of God in your creation. Everything hinges around Christ. And we just pray as we ponder a little bit on your ultimate purpose in your Son that you would uh, so strengthen and so enrich and so bless our hearts that we would leave here just in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and deeply worshipful. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, how much time do you spend thinking about the future? The future. Maybe a lot. Uh, I think we naturally think about uh, ourselves and our dear ones and our futures and that kind of thing, and quite reasonably so. Uh, what about a little broader? Do you ever think about like the big picture? Uh, do you ever ponder on the future of the universe? Or... Well, you should try it sometime. Because as Christians, uh, we can speak with certainty about it. Yes, we don't know what the weather will be like on your birthday, or if the, or when the Wallabies will win the Bledisloe Cup again. But there are more important things about the future that we do know. Though some deny this. I came across these words a few years ago from a man called Sir George Clark, uh, a great historian, editor of the 15-volume Oxford History of England. And in 1943, in the middle of World War II, he became professor of modern history at uh, Cambridge. And at his first lecture, he said, There is no secret... And no plan in history to be discovered. I do not believe that any future consummation could make sense of the irrationalities of preceding ages. I think Clark was wrong. Uh, history is neither without meaning uh, nor purpose, but is in fact moving irresistibly towards a glorious plan and goal. And that plan is for all things to be united or summed up in Jesus Christ. We saw in verse 8 that God has blessed his people with wisdom and understanding. And this includes what Paul goes on to say in verses 9 and 10. From verse 9, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth under one head, even Christ. In a happy home, uh, children long to know their parents' plans. They're reasonably egocentric, like what can or can they not do at their next birthday party? Uh, how many weeks of the year can be dedicated to a sleepover? That, that, that dreadful transition in culture that has taken place since my childhood. Um, you know, all that kind of thing. Where Family holidays, where are we going, that kind of thing. But in these verses, we see our Heavenly Father's 
plan for eternity. And, and verse 9 describes this as a mystery. The mystery in the New Testament is something that we would never have known unless God revealed it. Uh, it's not necessarily that the mystery is incomprehensible by nature, it's just that it's from God and he needs to reveal it to us. So in, in a very mundane and silly way, I could say it's a bit like my favourite colour. You know, it's nothing hugely out there, but you, you won't know unless I tell you. Um, and the mystery uh, revealed here is nothing less than what God has planned for the created order through Christ, which does tend to put all other future uh, events in perspective, like who will win the next election, be it in America or in Australia or for Warren, uh, when the eels, it is the eels, the eels West Tiger, sometimes I have that tension in my mind, but good, good, good to come back and clarify these things. When the eels will win uh, their next uh, rugby league uh, premiership. Uh, now, God's, the ultimate plan does not, I, I will say just for Warren's sake, it does not make such things unimportant, <laughs> but it certainly puts them into perspective. And the big cat in the bag, if you like, comes out in verse 10. That the mystery of God's will is to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And we have just read the when and the what of God's plan for the ultimate future of his creation. And the when is startlingly simple. NIV, when the times will have reached their fulfilment, ESV as a plan for the fullness of time and it just simply means at the appropriate time. No more, no less. This is the moment of God's timing. And our world and everything in it is moving irresistibly towards this. It is, verse 8, as part of the wisdom and part of the insight that, we, that God has lavished on us. And so the immediate future may bring you know, war or peace or drought or flood and, and we know no more about this uh, than the next person. Unless perhaps we're a meteorologist, we might make a guess on some of those things. But we do know about the ultimate future of all things. And we should be free of the anxiety and the angst and escapism and the materialism and other addictive behaviours that characterise people who do not have that wisdom and that grace of God presently uh, in their lives and are so uh, without, left without hope. But if that's the when of the uh, revealed mystery, God's timing... Uh, and particularly when Jesus is revealed from heaven, as we'll see a bit more later on. What about the what, if you like? And that is nothing less than God's ultimate purpose. But we do have to have a little 30-second excursion because you're thinking mystery, uh, and you may be thinking Ephesians 3, uh, which speaks of a mystery more limited in scope. So just to for the two people in the room who are thinking about Ephesians 3, let me put your... Minds at rest. Ephesians 3 verse 6 says, This mystery, mystery, okay, mystery, is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Jesus Christ. And I think John Stott had quite a helpful response to this different use of mystery in Ephesians 1 to Ephesians 3, and he writes, and I quote, In chapter 3, the mystery is the inclusion of Gentiles in God's new society on equal terms with Jews. But this present ethnic unity is a symbol or foretaste of a future unity that will be greater and more wonderful still. So if you like, Ephesians 1 is the full extension of the mystery that all things in heaven and on earth will be united under Christ. Surely the division between Jew and Gentile smashed, that's a part of it. But there is more to all things 
being uh, brought together under Christ than that. And to unpack this, uh, we need to think about the words which are, in our verse 10, are variously translated as NIV, you know, bring all things together under one head. Uh, ESV, unite all things in him. Uh, King James, uh, gather together in one all things in Christ. And the New American, which is interesting, the summing up of all things in Christ. And these reasonably different sounding English phrases all come out of one uh, long uh, Greek word. In the notes there, it's, it's transliterated, I think it's about 19 letters in Greek. It's a 17 letter Greek verb. And all of these different ideas of bringing together, unifying, summing up, it all comes out of this one very long word. And it's a word that's only used on one other occasion uh, in the New Testament, in Romans 13, uh, verse 9, which says that all of the commandments are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbour as you. So they come to the fruition, or they come to their main point uh, in that. God will sum up all things in Christ. But what does it mean to say that God will unite, or bring together, or sum up all things in Christ. And I think there are at least four powerful, and I think these are, re, these are just astounding, these are glorious themes that are at work here. And the first idea here that's in that word, I believe, is restoration. And that point is not really captured in most English translations, but that long Greek word carries the idea of restoration. This is a restored relationship. And through restored relationship, we have restored purpose. And particularly Lloyd-Jones in his commentary, uh, Lenski, a Lutheran scholar, and uh, in Colin Brown's Dictionary of New Testament Theology, that they bring out the restoration emphasis very nicely. Uh, and of course, something uh, that is uh, restored is something that is returned again to something like its original condition. And so we get the idea of restoration if we were to, for example, add the word again in verse 10. That is to sum up again, or unite again, or bring together again all things in Christ. So the ultimate plan of God is not merely to unite, but to reunite all things in Christ. And this is, I think, very helpful, particularly in terms of the flow of salvation history, our reading it as a, as a one big story from creation through fall to, uh, to new creation. It reminds us that when God made the world, it was very good. And that indeed, through his anointed risen King Jesus Christ, it will be very good once again and forever. God will fully restore redeemed humanity to relationship with himself and along with us bring the entire bruised and brutalised created order. This is beautifully seen in Romans chapter 8, particularly 19, verses 19 through uh, 21 and, and also passages like Revelation 21 where a new earth, you know, Peter just talks about it, Isaiah talks about it and, and John there talks about uh, a new earth is described where the dwelling of God is with mankind. Uh, Revelation 21 from verse 3. They'll be his people. And he himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And in this we are reminded that in the gospel, God is working to redeem a people with whom he will live forever. This is, this is Eden on a grand scale. You, know, you can't miss the imagery in Revelation 21 and 22 that's so Genesis 1 and 2. It's just the recovery of all of this and, and taken to, to greater heights. 
And in this uh, restored fellowship with God, it leads to the restoration of God's original purpose for humanity, of our being God's righteous vice-regents over the creation. Psalm 8 is probably the most famous and greatest description, arguably, of the glory of humanity as it was originally created. It draws on Genesis 1 and being image bearers. And and Psalm 8 says this from verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of? the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Now it's just Genesis 1, 26 to 28 again. But of course human rebellion has undermined this, resulting in the God-appointed lords of the earth living a few handful of decades and rotting in the soil they once managed. It will not be this way forever. And Hebrews 2 picks up on this theme. It quotes Psalm 8. Then it goes on to say about mankind, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. And a friend of mine who owned a property out at Richmond, well, he used to put it in these terms that the snakes on my property don't seem to quite understand my rule, my vice-regency here. Something's gone terribly wrong. Uh, and Hebrews 2 there is acknowledging man's frustrated purpose. We're, we're, we were made to do this, but is, is that our experience? No, it's not. The creation is not subject to us. But then verse 9 explodes, but we see Jesus. It's an explosion into the text and it goes on to talk about his victory over sin and death. So Jesus is the great victor, he's the great redeemer of that once majestic entity that was made in the image of God and to bring him glory, the human race, us. Through Christ, redeemed humanity will again fully express its image bearing and co-rule with him over a new creation, an earth without death, sin, suffering, discord frustration and Lloyd-Jones from a generation ago he said of this Christ represents us and we are in him and so we are going to be elevated to the positions of lords of creation again and everything will be placed under us so restoration I believe is a key idea here in God's ultimate purpose in Christ revealed in Ephesians 1 and and the apostle Peter he also emphasized the coming restoration in his sermon in Acts 3 verse 21 he spoke about the death and resurrection of Jesus and then says He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. Sin and human rebellion against God is temporary. It has a use-by date. That use-by date is the return of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, it will be dealt with. And after that will come full, final, lasting restoration. Peter also spoke of it in 2 Peter 3 where he talked about believers are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. I think it's perhaps rather a shame that we have not better understood this ourselves as believers and explained it to others about what the Bible teaches about the essential dignity of being human and how God restores and even extends that in the gospel. Instead, some Christians think of everlasting life as being done with the body and being done with the earth and... I think when we think like this, and I sympathise with people, and I, and I particularly pastoring when you're talking with people, you know, you, you comfort them, yes, it's better to depart and be with Christ, Philippians 1, yes. 
your body's let you down, you've had years of pain and all the rest, you just want done with it, you want to be with Jesus, fully sympathetic. But that is not the Christian hope, is not dying and your spirit leaving your body to go and be with Jesus. That's a lovely temporary consolation. But the Christian hope is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection and the, and the new creation to come. And in fact, when we fail to emphasize that, to some degree, um, not, 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 not intentionally, but we sort of almost declare sin the victor. That's as if God is unwilling or unable to redeem and to restore his creation. You know, really that whole embodied thing, that was, you know, the Greeks were right, a real bad idea. You know, the little Father, Son and Holy Spirit chat. Gosh, round two, we're going to do it differently. No way. The message of scripture is that Jesus Christ is the new or he's the second Adam. And he brings the victory over sin and death. And he is the great champion of the human race who restores our relationship to God and through this restores and renews the whole purpose for God in making man, to bring him glory and to rule in his image over the created order. Friends, the Bible assures us that one day the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah 11 and elsewhere. And, you know, millennial views aside, I think this ultimately speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, a place where restored, redeemed humanity will experience true and real humanity unmarred by sin and in full communion with God and more than in full communion with one another. We'll still be interdependent. We're still together uh, in all of that. And that, of course, is a place we can truly and finally and lastingly and forever call home. That's what we've got to look forward to. Well, a second idea, I think, within that long Greek word builds on restoration and that is unity. Since the fall, humanity has been unable to bring about even the most basic of unity, really, uh, to human relationships. Our individual relationships will often falter or just completely collapse. Uh, tribally, nationally, there's constant prejudice, hatred, war. But it is God's purpose to unite all things under Christ and to relieve humanity of its slavery to hatred and discord and to prejudice and war. For, of course, when we are united to God, again, we will be united to one another. And I think Isaiah pictures this again, this full future unity of the world to come. Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth, and a few verses later, 25, that, that famous imagery of the wolf and the lamb will feed together. And this pictures how the natural enemies of this present world, creatures never peaceably in each other's presence, will live in harmony and unity and even share a meal. Presumably vegetarian. Presumably vegetarian. Um, well, certainly not, not, uh, not lamb anyway. Um, so this, this amazing picture here, and it reminds us that, that all of the problems in our world today directly may be traced back to the rupture in our relationship with God. And our being reunited to God is often, we call it reconciliation, which carries the idea of restored unity. And we know in principle Christ has already achieved this. You look at Colossians 1, passages like that. But we also know that the full enjoyment of that reconciliation is yet to be experienced. And so this too is part of all things uh, being united in Christ. So two ideas so far, restoration, unity. Uh, as explanations for what it means for God to unite or bring together or sum up all things in Christ. 
And, and now I've got a third point, and there may well be another way or a better way of putting this, but I call it meaning. But I'm an art student by background, okay? I'm not a science, medicine, law, finance, engineering, Mr. Precision kind of guy. So this is my point, and I'm going to love it. Um, but I think also this point sort of reflects something of the difficulties that translators have in translating that very long word. And, but what I mean by meaning is this, that as Peter put in Acts 3, when, as Christ restores everything, everything will make sense. That only in Jesus can real and lasting meaning be established. Remember Professor Clark, I quoted earlier, he said that no future consummation could make sense of things. Well, I think it's just outrightly wrong. You see, Jesus is forever, who, as John described him, basically the ultimate revelation of God. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Or verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And so little wonder, Isaiah, you know, chapter 9, described the one to be born in, you know, and, and just take in the language. It's, it's extravagant, it's outrageous. I mean, we're talking about a child. What are we going to call it? Wonderful counsellor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's hard to imagine a more explicit statement of the incarnation of God without ceasing to be God, becoming man. And Isaiah then adds that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. In a sense, that's really Ephesians 1 verse 10. That's sort of when all things are united, that's the fullness of this life and rule and his dealt and judgments being done and where it's all heading and his rule and its blessings and its peace and its rest will go on and on forever. And when all things are summed up in Christ, when we see Christ, when we see the king in God's everlasting kingdom face to face, it's only then and only then will everything make sense. Then and only then will we and our world be at rest. And of course, rest in Scripture is not about inactivity. It's about complete deliverance from sin and frustration and the enjoyment of the fullness of life in God, our Maker. And the simple truth is that ultimately nothing makes sense without Jesus. Our world is confused because it tries to make sense of itself without looking to Jesus. You think about it. How can anything make sense when we ignore the one who made it and for whom it was made? Colossians 1. Or the one who holds it together, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and the one who will bring it to its ultimate purpose, harmony and glory. So no wonder things lack integrity in the fullest sense, not just honesty, but you know, wholeness, coherence, make sense. Uh, no wonder there's frustration and discord and confusion and you know, we, we, the men and women, we can't even sort out what it means to be man and woman because we've got, we lose our starting point, we lose our reference point in Christ the Creator and having been made and it's intentional and you, you, we're hardwired that way and, and it's just a perversion to try and do anything else. It's not just sociological, turn into anything you want. It's just, it's madness. And it leads to frustration and it leads to sin and it leads to disaster. When Christ returns and all things are united and summed up in him, all of that separation and the angst and the discord and confusion as to meaning and purpose, gone. Gone on forever. Because he's everything. He's our maker, he's our redeemer, he's our brother. And when he comes and we have that complete restoration of 
fruition of relationship and fellowship and we see him face to face. No more question marks about meaning. No more frustrating question marks. Only be happy question marks. How great is this God? He is so exalted and so glorious that the prospect of everlasting life is just something which he's just unlimited in his capacity to surprise and bring new joy. He is so wonderful. Well, friends, the fourth and last point contained in all things being brought together or summed up in Christ is, is around headship uh, and the authority of Christ as king. I mean, the word kephale is sort of in the midst of that very long word and there's some debate about what we should do with that, but it's all clear that all of this, that what Paul's talking about arises out of the rule of Christ. And I said that before, even a proper understanding of heaven is not just another realm where you know, God sits and it's all glorious and there's cherubim and flapping things and singing and, you know, it's, it's more than that. It's actually about the rule of Christ in that realm and, and the, the, the merging, if you like, of heaven and earth in, in the new creation where heaven and earth come together, as it were, and the dwelling of God uh, is with mankind. So I think headship, authority of Christ as king, the last point I want to talk about in this. Now, of course, in a, we live in a sinful world where democracy has advantages, uh, like being able to boot a government out without risking your life to do so. That's a, a great blessing and long may it last in that part of the world and may it extend and all of that. But of course, God is not into democracy. I don't mean society-wise, but in more bigger terms. As Jesus said after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. No election, no opinion polls, no journalists, uh, Ephesians 1 verse 22, God placed all things under his feet. Christ has been given all authority in the universe and he could crush in an instant, in a nanosecond, all rebellion against God. That's always been the way. I mean, even at his arrest, it's like, you know, Peter's there bringing out the water pistol or the little sword lopping off, what's his name, Malchus' ear, and just put it away. You know, got a you know, legion of angels. You know, really, if I, if I wanted to go down the the resistance route, Peter, I really, thanks, but no thanks. Um, it's never been an absence of power. But indeed, but now, as Jesus so put it, you know, and Matthew 13 is a fa- fabulous chapter of just explaining the fact that the kingdom is not coming all at once. If you like, this kingdom blessing now, kingdom judgment later. The weeds, or the wheat and the weeds, must grow up alongside one another. But of course, the time is coming. It will not always be that way. Time is coming uh, when, as Philippians 2.10 declare, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, earth, under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. And that is, the out, that is part of the outworking of that glorious day when the headship and the rule of authority of Christ is acknowledged by all. And I really like the Lutheran scholar Lenski on this. He, he says, the question is asked, as to when every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. And he offers this answer. At the parousia, the second coming, at the final judgment, heaven now rings with the name. Earth does so faintly in the confession of the saints. On that day, the universe of angelic beings and men shall stand before the throne of Christ. All his majesty and his power, all his grace, all his righteousness and his justice, the name will re- be revealed with absolute finality, then no knee shall remain unbowed, no tongue without acknowledgement. 
great and glorious day. Those who long for his appearing. Jesus Christ is the Lord and Master of the universe and one glorious day in the fullness of time, he will be acknowledged as such by all. On that great day when the truth of God in Christ is revealed from heaven, all created beings, happily or unhappily, as the case may be, will acknowledge the universal rule and lordship of Christ. And at this time, all rebelling on earth and in the heavens will be eliminated forever and cast into hell. It just, it just all gets back to the fullness of time. Things have not yet reached their fulfilment. And that is because in God's mercy, the gospel age is not yet complete. All of the elect are yet to be gathered. The Lord Jesus is still building his church. And I always think it's a little ironic when sometimes 20th century or 21st century people say, oh, well, why didn't he just sort of deal with it all back then? I'm thinking, well, well, listen, buddy, it's taken 20th centuries for you and I to be born. I'm quite pleased that he had this idea of a gospel age and a mercy age and fulfilling the promise to Abraham of bringing in countless folk yet not yet born from every nation, tribe and tongue. It's a wonderful thing. So friends, restoration, unity, meaning, headship or Christ's messianic authority are at least a good part of what is involved in God's ultimate purpose, the coming and glorious day when all things will be brought together, united and summed up in Christ. Well, how might we respond to this? Uh, four quick things. First of all, to do with our portrayal of Christ, it should inspire us to portray Christ fully and to let people know that Jesus is building a kingdom. Now, this is a kingdom in which men and women will enjoy everlasting life, will enjoy what it means to be truly human and to bring God glory. And we need to tell people that the kingdom of Christ is presently is still theirs to enter and to own. And it's not always going to be that way. He's going to come and that's it and that's over in terms of that kind of thing. It's still theirs to enter and to own. If they'll but put their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and have him as their rightful king. And just, just deal with people on this issue, this, this instinct that we all have in sin of, of resisting God and resisting lordship. And just get, let's get to the heart of Genesis 3 with people and just say, look, there is no liberty, there is no freedom for a creature outside of relationship and submission and enjoyment and delight in their creator. It's just a category madness to even think that, oh, how, how could there be any freedom or liberty outside of life with the creator? It's, it's, it's insane. Insane. Secondly, to do with our priorities. We are busy with many things. Some reasonable, probably, if we're honest, some less so. But as we remember where all things are heading in Christ, it should inspire us as Christians, we who bear his name, to costly and to dedicated and to a joyful living. And friends, nothing matters more to Jesus than obeying his Father's will and gathering and building up his bride, the church. And as we are gifted and enabled and placed by God in this world, it's our great privilege, it's our great joy, in effect, to live out our union with Jesus in this way by imitating him and by making our greatest priority the gathering and building up of his church. In other words, by making what matters most to him what matters most to us. And I know we do that differently. That's not to deny the cultural mandate. It's not to deny Christians in business and politics and everywhere and all over the place. It's not to deny that, but to always just 
realise that there is a very real sense in this world is not our home, with good reason, because it's a world in rebellion against God and our Heavenly Father is so kind and so gracious, he'd never let us eat of the tree of life and live forever in a world like this. No way, he's too kind for that. Uh, but he is indeed coming, he's returning in his son, he will unite all things in him. So our great priority is, it's a redeeming priority. I don't know what eternity future holds, you know, I don't know, things that I'm useless at, maybe in eternity I might get the artistic streak, may develop or whatever. We'll have plenty of time to do all sorts of things when sin and these, the great drama of redemption has in a sense fully resolved itself. Christ has come and judged and all those wonderful things. But for now, we have a context. And that context is the clash of kingdoms. It's on. We're in a war. We need to build up the body of Christ and offer Christ to people, whatever they do with it to some degrees, well beyond our scope and even beyond our business. But we are ambassadors, let's get on with that. We should seek God's grace to do as we sing and live for the kingdom. A third response to this, this, this great wonder of where we know it's all heading in Jesus is to do with our encouragement and to do with our perseverance as believers. I think remembering God's ultimate purpose in Christ encourages us to be what we might call Romans 8 Christians. That is, people who frankly acknowledge the pain, the insecurity, the uncertainty of life and of suffering in a fallen world, and yet who find strength in God. People who remember that in Jesus they are more than conquerors. I mean, that chapter's amazing. Paul boasting of being more than a conqueror and then listing famine and destitution and nakedness and starvation and the sword, which means, bring it on, he says. Dream up your worst nightmare. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Is that the best you can do? Satan and your world and your everything that's against you. Is that, that the best you can do? Think you, you, you tried that one on our Lord and Master. Three days later, remember? Back from the dead, having all real authority. doesn't work. You've got nothing on me. The only power you've got is the ability to discourage and distract me from the consummation and the glory that's coming uh, in Jesus Christ. So friends, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can keep us from the full inheritance of the kingdom of God when Christ returns. And we need to remember that. It's not that the hardships are not hard, the pain and the grief is not pain and it's not grief. Of course that is. We enter into that, yet we do have this this wonderful capacity to to know that we can just leave things in the Father's hands and and all things will be reconciled and all sorts of mysteries and unhappy ones and happy ones to some degree we can just worship. You just get on your knees and worship God. That's where it takes us. And remember that as, as Jesus said in Matthew 13, the day is coming when we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Or back to Romans 8. And our present sufferings are not worth compared, comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So remembering where all things are heading, it's a reminder to perseverance and to encouragement. Romans 8, Christians. Fourth and by no means least, and to finish, to do with our praise. It should inspire us to join our brother Paul. I mean, think the context. Ephesians 1, and praise or declare blessed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It should drive us to to the wonder and to the joy and to the consolation of worshipping the one to whom all worship is due. The one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing of the Spirit in Christ. The one who is working to unite all things in his dear Son. And who has, as we'll see next time, as we'll see tomorrow morning, 
given us a truly full and remarkable assurance. That's in verses particularly 11 through 14. That everyone looking to Jesus, that everyone trusting in him, has the spirit of God and will indeed experience the very fullness of God in eternal life. Amen. And shall we pray? Father, we, we're just so deeply privileged that you would give us Ephesians 1 verse 10 or Acts 3, 21, was it, where he must remain in heaven until the time for God to restore everything. And Lord, we know that this is exceedingly marvellous and we just so thank you for your amazing commitment to your creation and to particularly to us uh, as your image bearers and your creatures, um, your great unrivaled covenantal love and persistence in redeeming a people with whom you will live in all eternity and who will experience the full recovery of what it means to be human and as we saw earlier to be adopted as sons and made co-heirs with the natural son all of this is immense and it's rich and uh, it's so full of meaning it's so full of hope it's so full of encouragement uh, that it does enable us to have this as the great anchor uh, for our lives and we do acknowledge you Lord Jesus we thank you for your prayer in John 17 where you acknowledge those who believe without having not yet seen you and that's each one of us here but we do long and for that glorious day when we will indeed see you and uh, we look forward to that day come Lord Jesus come Amen